With all that being said, let's get into the Word of God. Uh, turn to Revelation chapter 1. We're going to continue in our study of Revelation. And uh, today we will open up verses 5. We got into the first part of 5 last week. Today we will look back at that because it has implications for verses 6, 7, and 8. And uh, it will show us just exactly what the implications of Jesus Christ being the faithful witness, firstborn from the dead, and the kings of, of all the earth, or the ruler of the kings of all the earth. It will show us what that means for us and what the implications are, what should be the reality in our life since that is true. And if you'll remember that it was a great representation, a great description of the Trinity, the, the, the tri uh, the, the tri-aspect of God, the one true God of the universe, Yahweh, uh, in three persons, in the Holy Spirit, in God the Father, and in Jesus Christ. We saw that it came from, and this is three, and there's a theme of three in the, in the first chapter of Revelation and in a lot of the book of Revelation. And we see this hit this time, and it says, uh, Grace to you and peace from he who is, who was, and who is to come. Yahweh, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, that's the perfect Holy Spirit, and from three again, Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. It goes on in that same verse to uh, tell us something about the uh, aspects of his kingship and his faithful witness that apply to us and how he loves us and some other things that it says about us. And so before we read, I want you all to stand to your feet in reverence of God's word. We're going to read the Bible, and then we're going to ask the Lord to write it on our hearts. So as we all stand, let's read starting in verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sin by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail or mourn on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. May God bless the reading and the hearing of his word. Now, we fit these last three verses, five uh, six, seven, and eight, four verses uh, in the, this sermon because it's the end of the salutation. So we had a greeting to the letter, and then we had what the letter was about, and now it's the close of this, this first part of the greeting. We had the prologue and, and, and then uh, what, who it was to, and now he'll close out the greeting and start with the actual letter. He says here of Jesus Christ, and we're going to go back just a little bit into Jesus Christ and the three aspects of Christ that is revealed here because we'll need to reestablish that just a little bit so that we can launch off in what this means to us and how we are to apply it to our lives. Now remember, I don't stand up here just to say a bunch of things or you know, people say, you're funny. Well, that's all well and good if it helps you to understand what the Bible is teaching, but my job is not to be funny 
My job is not to entertain you. My job is not to even be a good charismatic speaker. My job is to rightfully divide the word of truth that you might understand who God is, have it applied to your life, change your, li- your life, change to be molded to the word of God, and you become who God wants you to be through the sanctification of God's truth. That's, that's the prayer that Jesus prayed for you in John chapter 17. If I'm just entertaining you up here, we're not doing very much of nothing except having a good time for a little while. So let's expound on God's word. Let's exegete. Let's get our understanding from the word and then let it change your life to reflect who God is. Let's be uh, conformed to the image of the son. Okay. So we see here this threefold aspect or this, thir- this, this threefold description of who Jesus Christ is, and this has great implications on who we are to be and who we are because of who Jesus is. Now, this is going to be great today, whether I do a good job or not, because the truth of God's word is an amazing truth that comes out here and should free you to be an amazing child of God that that walks in power, that walks in uh, freedom, and even when the world rises up against you, that you are effectively reaching people for the kingdom of God and that you remain faithful even under persecution. This is why John's writing it. This is when John is writing it. He's writing it in the midst of tribulation, and he is saying, these are the truths that are going to hold you during the tribulation. So many of us, we just said some of them, are under trials right now. Many of you are facing surgeries. You're facing broken relationships. You're facing broken families. You're you're facing spiritual crisis. You're facing all of these things, and you're asking yourself, you came in here asking yourself, Lord, how am I going to get through? You're asking yourself, Lord, how am I going to experience victory in the midst of all of these trials and all of these troubles? How am I going to get through? How many of you have asked that in the past week? And the rest of you are probably lying. He answers that here. He answers it here. Let's look back at the threefold description of Jesus Christ and let's springboard off of that. Go back, he says in verse 5, And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. So here he addresses the letter to the seven churches with showing every person of the Trinity, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. And then off of the Son, he transitioned to speaking to us about the Son. He says, To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. Now speaking to us about Jesus Christ. But let's look at these three aspects of Christ. First, he is the faithful witness. And we said last week that the, the, the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. That's true, but the church is ultimately built on the blood of the martyr, the faithful witness, Jesus Christ. And as he was faithful in his witness about God, he, he, he displayed perfection in everything that he did. The Bible says that while he was tempted in every way like we are, he had no sin found in him. And so he went to the cross, a perfect and blemishless sacrifice, and he maintained the word of God. He was faithful to God, and that, that word witness is actually the Greek for martyr. Uh, this, this word is that, that, he, that he was faithful to the end. He gave it all up for the glory of God. He was faithful to the end. Now, we're not faithful to the end, but the Bible tells us that while we are faithless, he is good and just and faithful. Praise God for that. Amen. 
Because we fail daily and we say, oh, Lord God, I've failed. I'm in trouble now. But the Lord says, you are not saved based on your righteousness, but based on the righteousness of Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness. Amen? So you get his glory. You get his righteousness. You get his faithfulness. Praise God. So out of that, it says Jesus Christ is the faithful witness. And because he was a faithful witness, he was the firstborn of the dead. The Bible says in Philippians and in several different places that because of the sacrifice and his perfect uh, sinless sacrifice, his name, he was given a name above every name. Because of this perfect faithful witness of Jesus Christ, he was exalted to the heavens. The God man came into the flesh, into this rotting body of flesh, though he existed in the form of God. He did, not, he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, even a slave. And so he laid his life down, and in so doing the perfect sacrifice, he was exalted on high, and he was the firstborn of the dead, meaning that when he went into the grave, sin could not hold him. Death had no power. Death had no sting. I like to picture these things as I'm reading the Bible, and I, and I just picture this. Now, there's a big debate uh, for, for centuries now of whether or not Jesus descended into the pits of hell or, or whether he just went into the grave. Did he go straight to paradise? Did he go into hell? Uh, you know, there's, we don't need to take time to debate that right now. All I know is, is that when I read this and, and, and when I see this picture of Jesus Christ going into the grave, if nothing else, if you want to say he just went into the grave, that's okay. That he went into the grave and Satan, I can picture now Satan going, yeah, yeah, got him, <laughs> got him, you know what I'm saying? And I just, I just picture Jesus falling, right? I just, he's crucified on the cross and, and Satan thought he had him. Satan thought he had him. It's much like Goliath when he was laughing at David, right? He said he, he laughed with a deep laugh. <laughs> Who is this dog that come, Who are these dogs that come out here? I can see Satan doing it now. I can see it. But, 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 but when Christ showed up, I just see him falling into the valley of dry bones. I don't know. Now, this is just an illustration. This is speculation on my part. But, but this is, my, this is my, my mind's picture. This is, my, this is the way my mind works it out. So he's slain on the cross, right? And Satan's got him. Satan's got him. He's, he killed the, the God man on the cross. And, and, and Jesus descended into the grave. And Satan said, yes. But when, when Jesus landed in that pit, when Jesus landed in that grave, poof, this great cloud arose around him. He lifted up his eyes, and Satan was like, oh, heck. <laughs> you see? You see? Because, because what is Satan's weapon? Death. Death, right? And what, what, is, what is death's grip? What is death gripped by? Does anybody know the scripture? Come on. Sin. And when Jesus descended into the pit, into the grave, and he did not have any sin of his own, death had no grip. So I can see Satan, hold up, hold up, hold up, hold up. Had no grip. That's how he was able to be the firstborn of the dead. Because he was a faithful witness. And when he came back from the grave... He took his place on the throne because no one else can do that. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. 
So Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, is the firstborn of the dead because he had no sin. And when he descended into the pit, there was nothing to grip him. So he slipped back up and out and then took his rightful place on the throne and said, I told you so. I told you so. Don't do it. Okay. Now, I I say all of that to, to set this up. Because this means something. This means something for me and for you, at least for believers. You may be in the room and, and you're not a believer. I, I, you know, I'm sorry. You can be today. Amen. You can be today. For all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But for the believers in the room, I want you to know that this is important. And it should be effectual. It should be real in your life. This should should change your reality because your God and Savior, Jesus Christ, isn't just some, some, some humble Galilean peasant anymore. No, he came in the flesh to die on the cross, but he didn't stay dead, but he arose. He arose and he took his place on the throne. And when he did, this is what the truth is that comes out of it. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom. Has made us priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, the construction of this sentence, this phrase. When it says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. When he says, to him, I would like, if I, while I'm writing and studying it, to him, put a parenthesis, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, parenthesis, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. So when it says to him, It's just clarifying who he is and what he did for us. He's saying to him who did these things, be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, that's going to be important. Because when it says to him, Jesus Christ, it it, it defines who he is and what he did in that part. We're going to look at that. That has implications for us. But what you need to realize is, is that when he comes back and he says to him, description, 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 to him, again, be honor. And glory, it says, I'm sorry, I don't want to misquote. It says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. What this parenthesis is saying is that it's saying some cool things about us. It's saying that God has caused us to become a royal priesthood. It's called us to become uh, uh, heirs to the throne. That that we are in many ways kings as well. We see ourselves with crowns in the end. Now we see ourselves under the authority of Jesus Christ because we will take our crowns and throw them at his feet. But you do have dominion here. The whole point is this, is that you don't live under the yoke of sin any longer. The people of this world, they can't not sin. But you, you have been given through the cross of Christ and the resurrection power to overcome sin. If, if, child of God, now I'm speaking to believers now. If, child of God, you are sinning, 
then you are the one returning to your sin like a dog returns to its vomit. You don't have to do that. You choose to go back, but God has freed you from that. And it's like you take the, the noose that was taken off of your neck by the Lord Jesus Christ and put it back on. You need to stop doing that. I need to stop doing that. We need to live in the glory of God and in the freedom that he has given. But it says here that he has loved us and he has made us a kingdom, priests. But he comes back and he says, to him be glory and dominion forever. Why do I point that out before I get into the meat of that? It's because what I'm about to tell you about becoming kings and becoming uh, uh, um, priests and, and, and getting all of this power. Because I'm about to tell you something. We live in, in defeat so much of the time, but the reality is, is that we have nothing but power. We, we, we cover it. We veil it. We go back to sin where we don't take advantage of the power, the resurrection power of God that he has given us in place in our lives that lives inside of you. If you don't have the Spirit, you do not belong to Christ. If you belong to Christ, you have the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, it's the same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Go read Romans chapter 8. If you live in a defeated way, either you're not saved or you are quenching the Spirit in an amazing way. But though I tell you about this power, you remember this, that this is bracketed by the glory of Christ. And his dominion. This does not derive from you. It is not from anything that you have done. You are not worthy to receive grace. You are not worthy to receive mercy. You did not earn your salvation. You did not, you did not, God didn't look down and say, I think he'll do well with my power, or I think he'll do well with my power. No, sir, it was unwarranted. It was nothing but the grace of God that brought the power of God to you, and we need to acknowledge that. We need to walk humbly before the Lord because. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He says here, he says, yes, all these things are true, but you remember to him who loves us, to him who made us kings and priests, to him be glory and dominion forever. And we never take his glory. We never try to take dominion, but we are always subject to Christ. It says here that he says, him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood, he has freed us. It is not, a, it is not even a, a he is freeing us. The verb tense there is not one of present, active, uh, continuing uh, uh, action. It is one that has already been done. He has freed us from our sin. You see it? It says, from he, he who lo, him who loves us, that establishes this relationship, and why he did what he did, it was out of love, it's his glory and his dominion, nothing was owed, it was, a, it was an unadulterated, unwarranted, pure love that he, done it, that he done it out of, and this love came to free you from your sin, and it, and it is in a past tense that you have been freed from your sin. Why do we continue to go back to it? He has freed us from our sins by his blood. By what? By his blood. You remember the firstborn of the dead. He was the firstborn of the dead because he was a faithful witness. He poured out, of, he poured out his blood 
in perfect righteousness and harmony to fulfill the law of God that you might be covered in the blood and therefore seen as perfectly fulfilling the law. Let's move on. And has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. That phrase there, there's, <clears throat> we're going to do a little Bible drill right here. That phrase there that says, uh, uh, has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. This is tied together with the firstborn of the dead and to the ruler of the kings of the earth and the faithful witness. If you remember last week, I took you to Psalm chapter 88 or 89, and we looked at that uh, in the, the Psalms. If you want to turn there with me, you can. If not, I'll go there and just read it to you. Psalm 89. We, we looked at this one last week because in Psalm 89... Verse 27 says this, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. You see it. John is directly alluding to an Old Testament prophecy of, in this context, in the Psalms, he's actually speaking of who? Anybody know? David. But the implications are greater. Now, I don't have time to get into types and shadows and, and all these things. But what we know, it cannot be any other way, is that David was a type of Christ. And David, all the truths that were said about David were ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. That, 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 that David was the lesser Jesus. That, that Jesus is the greater David. And we see these truths being fulfilled not in David, but in Jesus Christ. Now... Why do I bring that out here? It's because what the implications are found in Psalm chapter 89 have implications of us becoming a kingdom of priests as well. I want you to read with me if you're there. If not, I'll read it to you. That the language is found in, in Psalm 89 in several places. Look over here at Psalm 89 verses 1 through 4. Listen to this. I'll read it to you. I will sing of the steadfast love. I want you to think about that. Let me go back and read Revelation 1, that part, one more time so you'll have that context in mind. To him, let's go, let's go, verse 5. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. You got that? Okay, now Psalm 89. This is amazing stuff. The, the word of God is absolutely just mind-boggling, mind-blowing, phenomenal. Check this out. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. Where is, now we're going to see it in just a second, where is this faithfulness displayed here in the next uh, few verses? In verse 8. He says this, I'm sorry, in verse 7, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him, even so, amen. When we get to chapter 4, after we get to the letters to all the churches, it will take us to the throne room in heaven. And this is where it's displayed. It's amazing. He says, In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David by my servant, I will establish 
establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. Is anybody seeing the connections? He says, because of the faithfulness, I will establish your offspring forever. What does that sound like to you? I will establish your offspring forever? It means that he, he is establishing a kingdom. And you know the heir to the throne would always succeed the king. And once the king is established forever, then those who are his children are established along with him, the offspring. Flip over with me to verse 19. There's so much more there, but I just don't have time. Verse 19 of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. So it's speaking of David in the direct context, but he is going to show, in all, not just in Revelation, but in many passages in the New Testament, that all of these were shadows and types pointing to Jesus Christ who would fulfill it all in an ultimate way. He goes on, I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Listen to this. My, my faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name, his horn be exalted. Now, what was the horn? You remember from the tabernacle, the symbols, the horn is a symbol of power. His power will be, will be established forever. Listen, it goes on. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, you are my father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Who is it speaking of? Jesus. It speaks of Jesus. He goes on, I have to read a little bit more. And my covenant will stand firm with him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children, here's where I want you to hear. His children, if his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgression with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. Now, we know from Hebrews that he disciplines those whom he loves. And you should not withhold a rod from a child. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love. Praise God. Praise God. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all, I have sworn by my holiness. I will not lie to David. You see, we're established as a kingdom of priests because of Jesus Christ's faithful witness. You see, many of us question whether or not we're even, even in the kingdom anymore. We question whether or not we're under the grace of God. We question whether or not we're still part of the covenant family because of sins that we have in our life. And while that is good that we examine and we wonder and we look lest we drift from the truth, if you are a born-again believer, it is not your righteousness that maintains your relationship with God, but it is Jesus' righteousness that maintains your relationship with 
with God. And that serves as a motivation for repentance to come back because he has not left you. And we look at that and we say, he has not left me. Therefore, I will run and flee back to the Father. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom priest to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. There's just not enough hours in the day, I tell you. There's not enough hours in the day. I do want to go one other place. I want to go to Exodus chapter 19. I have to, I have to really work hard to figure out how much do I want to give you? How deep do we want to go? Because I want to point out something here to you. These promises that are made in Exodus chapter 9, verse 6. We're going to flip over here in just a second to Daniel chapter 7. We're going to look at Zechariah chapter 12. These promises that are made in the Psalms, they are not made to you. Not in that context. You understand this. We have this, we have this, <laughs> we have this mountain to climb, seemingly, of how do we know what is applicable or what is about us and what is not. Because when we, what we're about to read in, in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, is written to Israel. This is written as, as Moses is talking to the Lord God, Yahweh, and getting instructions to give to Israel. Now, I'm going to show you here. I am, I, and I'll bring these two out, and, and I think about guys like Mickey, and I think about Keith, who's not here. He may be watching live stream, and damn, we start talking about all these things. There's two different camps of theology. There's dispensationalism, and there's covenant theology. For those of you who have no idea what those words mean, it's okay. It's okay. What's important is, is that what is the truth of God and how is it applicable to my life and what does it teach about Jesus Christ? Do we, do we at the end of the day, do we take it all back to Christ no matter what we believe about who Israel is? A quick little synopsis or a quick little description of what those two things are because it's fairly important on how I understand the text to be understood, okay? Because I'm not a dispensationalist. I am a covenant theologian, meaning that I believe, and I, I don't want to be general here, and I don't want to make a straw man about dispensationalists, because I, obviously I don't, dis, I don't agree with dispensationalism, but dispensationalism, in a broad way, sees a clear distinction between the nation of Israel and the church in the New Testament, okay? If you believe that way, that's fine. You're still my friend, and we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. It's okay. All right, We can agree to disagree, and we can even sharpen each other. Me and Keith Sherlin do it all the time. And he's a lot smarter than me, and he's a dispensationalist. He's written, he's written his own systematic theology. I've not done that. So I, I really take heed to what he says. I've just not been convinced yet through the Scriptures. Okay, And I'll show you a little bit of why here in just a second. I don't see a clear-cut distinction between Old Testament Israel and the New Testament church. I do make a distinction between ethnic Israel and spiritual Israel, or true Israel. I make a distinction between those who are ethnic in blood and DNA and those who are true Israel. I don't have time to get into all of the reasons why I believe that. We can have discussions sometimes if you'd like to do that, that's fine. But in, at the end of the day, Romans says that not all Israel is true Israel and not, not those who are Jews outwardly are not necessarily Jews inwardly. And so in Galatians and many other places, it seems to me that the Bible teaches us that all the promises that were made to Israel are fulfilled to 
Israel included, but to people of every tribe, every tongue, and every nation known as the church, also known as the bride, also known as the children of God, also known as true Israel, also known as the elect, also known as the, um, the covenant community. Um, you take your pick of the words. I don't believe that there's uh, Old Testament Israel and the church, and somehow these two are going to go together in the end. I think that we're talking about one people. Now, why did I tell you all of that? Because here in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and I do want to say that that's open-handed. You can disagree with me on that. We're still brothers and sisters in Christ, and we can talk about it, okay? Prove me wrong. I'm up for it. I'm, I just want to know the truth. But I'm not convinced of that yet. Okay, so Exodus chapter 19, verse 6 says this. I'll show you part of the reason why, two reasons why here. So this is the Israel at Mount Sinai. Now, these promises are made to the nation of Israel. Moses is leading Israel. Uh, he, is, he is hearing from God. He is going to, to, to write down the Ten Commandments. He is going to give them instructions on how to build the tabernacle. This word is for Israel. Okay? That's going to be important. This word's for Israel. This is not for New Testament Gentiles. At this time, this is for Israel. Okay? Here's what he says. In verse 4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptian, God speaking, and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and holy nation. Flip back over to Revelation. He says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to God, his God, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Now, who are who these letters written to? Who is he speaking to in Revelation that he obviously alludes to Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, to a text that was written to Israel about making them a priest or a kingdom of priests, a priest or a royal priesthood. There's a, there's a question on that translation there. Should it be royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests? It's not that big of a distinction. The bottom line is it's a kingdom made up of priests. He makes that promise to Israel in the Old Testament, but who is he saying fulfills it here in the New Testament? Who is he writing to? Believers. He's writing to the church. So John here takes that understanding, he takes that text that is written to Israel, and he applies it to all believers. He applies it to the church in the New Testament, basically saying that the church is the fulfillment of the promises made to Israel. Because the, the, the promises was never made to ethnic Israel. You understand that? It is not by flesh and blood, but by what? Faith. And it was always faith. By faith, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham received righteousness before the nation of Israel was ever formed, about 430 years before the law. It was never about ethnicity. It was never about, never about DNA, but it was about faith in God. God did use the ethnic nation of Israel. But soteriology or the study of salvation and faithfulness to God's covenant and salvation in the Old Testament was never based on ethnicity, but always faith in God. But there's more. But wait, there's more. He says, to him has freed us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us 
a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory forever and ever. If you'll turn over with me to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. First Peter's a book. It says here, for the same language, First Peter chapter 2. I want you to listen to this. Now, remember Psalm 89. And when you take, and I know this is jumping around, you're like, well, I'm just going to have to trust you. When you take Psalm 89, you take Exodus 19.6, you take Zechariah 12, you, part, you put all of this together with Revelation chapter 1. Listen to First Peter chapter 2.25. Do you remember in the Psalm 89 where it says, a chosen one will be chosen and through him I will make a royal priesthood or he will be the firstborn among the dead and through him his offspring will be established forever. You remember, it's, you use that word chosen one. Listen to this right here. Starting in verse 4, First uh, Peter chapter 2, verse 4. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen to Chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Now, who is he talking to here? The church. Just believers. We don't exclude Israel from the church, but we say the church is made up of true Israel and all other believers, that we are one, that we are one in Jesus Christ. There is no longer two men but one. He says here to the believers, to the believers, to the believers, he says they stumble, talking about unbelievers, they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, that's a whole other sermon right there. But listen to this. But you are a chosen race. Now, why are we a chosen race? Because Jesus Christ is the chosen one, and we are his descendants, his offspring through faith, and therefore the whole race of what? Is this a race of ethnicity? Or a race of believers. But you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. There's the same language of Exodus chapter 19 verse 6. The same language of Revelation chapter 1. That, but you are a chosen race. A royal priesthood. A holy nation. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of the darkness and into the marvelous light. There's so much here. I wish I had another three hours. This whole idea of light. This whole idea of light and reflecting the glory of God. Moses on the mountain comes down off and he's reflecting this glory of God so much that the people of Israel say, you got to cover your face up. Do you walk around like that? Well, if you are what Christ has made you to be, kings, priests, then when you walk into a room, people will be like, what is that? And it will tick people off or it will bring them to salvation. If you're a child of God and you're living for the king, it's hard to have friends. But the ones you have, brothers, sisters forever. Amen, Amen, Ben. Okay, I don't have... 
where we need to go. Revelation 5. So much, so much, so much. This is talking about the Revelation chapter 5 is going to open us up to a little bit deeper understanding of who he has made us in kings and priests. Listen to this. Revelation chapter 5. Listen to this. Starting in verse 9. And they sang a new song saying, now this is after the lamb opened up the scroll. Worthy are you to take, or when he's going to take, open up the scroll. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I don't know. Now, I'm not a dispensationalist because I, I, I can't find that understanding. You may be. If you are. Please, please help me to understand this verse. Worthy are you to take this scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, and people and nation, and you have made them. Who? Them. Who's the them? People from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. Who believe you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. That's a clear allusion to Exodus 19.6 and the promises made to Israel. So who is true Israel? Everyone who would believe from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation. That's my understanding. Now, it goes on. It, it, it continues. This book is so deep and so wide and so thick and so good. Listen to this. Behold, he is coming. Now, I know I just jumped over glory and dominion forever and ever, but we hit that a little bit earlier, and, and I wanted to touch on that earlier because we need to give all glory and dominion to Jesus Christ, even though he has made us kings who will reign on the earth and who will have, who have dominion with him, who have inheritance with him. This does not puff you up. This does not make you proud, but it lowers you down to the lowest position possible, not of self-worth. Your self-worth is found in God, and you have no self-worth. You have God-worth. And Jesus Christ has, has given you his blood and righteousness, and, and there's nothing that can come against you. What, what weapon formed against you can stand? Nothing can come against you. So you have all the worth in the world through the blood of Jesus Christ. But your position of, of pride and arrogance is the lowest of the low. We give all glory to God, all glory to God. But the truth is still the truth, and you are kings on the earth. And you, you have been entrusted, ambassadors of God. You have been entrusted with the glory of God. You've been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ to take it and build a kingdom, to build your kingdom. For you sit on the throne with Christ. Don't you know that? In Ephesians 2, he has, he has, he has taken us to the heavenlies. He has seated us in the heavenly realm. That we share in the authority with Jesus Christ? Wow, we will judge angels? Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Check it out. That's in Zechariah chapter 12. It's almost... 
It's almost perfectly quoted with a few additions, which is why, again, I, I can't see the clear distinction between Israel and the church because, because it seems to me very clear from the Scriptures that the church is the fulfillment of all the promises made to Israel. It's not a change. It's a fulfillment. It's a blooming. It's not like God was trying to do something through Israel, failed, and then the church was plan B. No, sir. The church was always on his mind. The church was always found in Israel. It was those remnant of believers. That was the seeds of the church. And it grew up into this, into this blossoming flower. Now, some had to be pruned. Some had to be grafted. Some had to be this. Some had to be that. But there was always in mind one people of God that would be brought together by the blood of Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says in Zechariah chapter 12. And I will pour out, this is chapter 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David. Now, this is speaking of Israelites. This is speaking of Jerusalem. This is speaking of King David. <clears throat> and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So here the Messiah is prophesied and it speaks of him coming and, and that they will look on him on whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Now, what I had never really in-depth studied Revelation and when I read this I always thought that when it says behold he is coming on the clouds and every eye will see him even those who pierced him all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him I always thought that they were wailing in a bad way that they were wailing because woe is me I'm undone I'm about to be killed because Christ is coming on the clouds well some people understand the text is meaning that but others, and I'd have to agree with, see the allusion in the Old Testament reference to Zechariah chapter 12. And Zechariah chapter 12 is not about the judgment that's looming over Israel, but about those who will see him and they will receive the grace of God to understand who Jesus is. And they will fall on their knees and they will wail out in mourning for what they have done. And they will be repenting and crying out, Lord, save me. I'm so sorry. They're pleading with God. I, I, I've sinned, Lord. My sin has overwhelmed me and I see it. And I don't want to sin anymore. What do I do with this? Oh, God, I believe in you. Please, please save me. Now, some suggest that John takes the, the quote from Zechariah chapter 12 and he flips it on its head because it's clear in Zechariah 12 that it's, it's grace. It's a wailing of repentance and not of judgment. Does everybody follow that, what I'm saying? Some say, well, he got that text from Zechariah and he's using it in the opposite way, but... You, you really have to work hard to prove that because John doesn't do that. He uses contextual uh, understanding of the verse. And it stays in line because they're not weeping on account of them. They're not weeping on account of what they are going to get, but they're weeping on account of him. They see him. Now, why do I bring all of this out? It's because of two changes or two additions. He doesn't directly quote from Zechariah chapter 12. But he adds two things onto it. In Zechariah chapter 12, it says, 
And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas of mercy so that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Okay? Now, this is a pleading for repentance that is said to be given to Israel, the, the, the nation of Israel, right? How is that applied? Look at the additions. Let's go back to what is true Israel. Look at the additions. To him who loved, let's go, uh, verse 7. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and here's one addition, every eye. That's not in the Zechariah 12 verse, but here John helps us to understand. He gives us more insight. He gives us a greater understanding and a deeper interpretation. And he, has, he says, every eye, not just, not just Jerusalem's eye, not just Israel's eye, but every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. Here's the next addition. Now, they say the nation of Israel, but here it says all tribes of the earth. Every tribe of all the earth. This is an addition. John is giving us further revelation, further understanding of the promises that were made to the people of Israel. And Zechariah chapter 12 applies to all people. You see, God had one people that he was going after from all times. That is so comforting. Because God always knew. He always knew, Jake, that you were his. And he was going to get you, boy. You can't stop him. You can't turn him away. You can't slow him down. I don't believe in a God who says, will you please? Will you please? I said, I believe in a God who says you will. And you will today. I'm coming to get you and nothing will stop me. You see, when my child is running into the street, when my child is, is heading toward the rolling car, I don't say, will you turn around? Don't go into the street, Titus, please. No, I grab him up because I'm bigger. And he may say, but my ball's in the street, my ball's in the street while he's being dragged backwards. He always knew who you were. He always knew who you were. He always knew. He didn't try and fail and try something else. God we're talking about his purposes never fail and his will is always carried out this text that was for Israel in context is, is, is revealed to us by John to be about all tribes of the earth every eye that will see him and bow the knee to Jesus Christ will receive the promises that were given to Israel because we are true Israel, the bride of Christ, the church, a people that have been carved out for his possession, made holy and blameless a kingdom. Now there's so much more there, but as we close it out and as you stand to your feet, look at verse 8. What's the takeaway from the sermon? What's the takeaway? What's the practical implications of the sermon? What have, we, what have we seen today, guys? This is us just talking. What have we seen today? We've seen that, that Jesus Christ was the faithful witness who perfectly walked out to the letter, the law of God, and fulfilled it, right? He was the faithful witness. He was faithful in fulfilling the law. He was a faithful witness by dying on the cross. 
He was the firstborn of the dead because death couldn't hold him. And when he came out of the grave, he took his rightful place on the throne. His name was exalted above every name. And in so doing, he came to us out of love. And through this sacrifice, he carved out for himself. He, he set aside for himself a people that, that's a chosen race. A people that's a chosen race. Chosen for what? You can't escape the words. You're chosen. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 1. In love you were predestined before the foundations of the world. So like, predestined, chosen. Deal with the text. You are a chosen race. You are a chosen people. You were on his mind then. He did what he did so that you could be who, you, who he called you to be. A kingdom, a royal priesthood. Now you've got a, a job to do. You've got a life to live. You've got a, you've got a purpose in this life. That he who was the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the king, the ruler of all the kings on the earth, has now, through love, because he loved you, set you free from your sin. And not only set you free. We always stop there, don't we? Well, I'm free of my sin. I'm good now. Praise the Lord. He's freed you from your sin for a purpose. Doggone it, he didn't just free you from your sin and now you just hold on to the end. He didn't save you for heaven. He saved you for him. Now. Right now. He saved you. He freed you from your sin that you might be able to run the race of life. Setting your eyes on the author and perfecter of the faith. Amen, Ben. Amen. He, he, he saved you for a reason. Stop living purposeless. Stop living as if you're just going through the motions and just holding on to the end. Even in great trials. And we remember, that's why John is writing. Well, I'm in a trial right now, Brandon. I don't have the passion you have. I'm in a trial right now, Brandon. I don't have the fire that you have. Well, doggone it, I'm in trials too. And when the trial hits and the temperature's turned up is when the Lord Jesus Christ is coming and walking in the furnace. In the trial is where he's more clearly seen. When it gets hot and when it gets hard, you lean on the Lord Jesus Christ because you ain't got nowhere else to go. You ever thought that he brought that trial for that very purpose? You're praying to get out from under it. And he's like, I, I paid good money for you to be here. It's got a reason. It's got a purpose. Jesus Christ, who is king, makes you a king along with him. Jesus Christ, who is the priest, made you a priest along with him. What does this mean? It means that you, child of God, are a royal priesthood who does what Jesus does. You exercise dominion over the world. You see, this is the fulfillment of what the garden was supposed to be. You exercise dominion over the world. And through your priestly activity, showing the sacrifice and proclaiming the gospel, you are fruitful and multiply. You're to be squirting out babies all over the place. Multiplying the kingdom. 
And in that heavy trial, you just cast your eyes upon him because he's coming on the clouds, baby. And it don't matter if you're a dispensationalist, a covenant, post-mill, pre-mill, pre-rapture, whatever. He's coming back. We might wonder if it's on this side or that side of the millennium or wherever else. But the truth is, he's coming back. And when he comes back, you're going to break down in tears saying, praise the Lord. And so will many others. You're going to break down. And there will be some who will weep and mourn and wail because it's not so good. So rise up today. Live as if the word of God is true in every way. You build your life on this. He said you was a king. He said you was a priest. Just like him. Now let's stop living defeated. Man, I'm preaching to me. And let's get busy for the Lord. Let's get busy for God. Verse 8 says this, and I'll read it, and we'll have, we'll have an invitation. Why should we do it all? He says, this is just in quotes. He just busts out. He says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty, the God the Father, Yahweh, sets his stamp on it and says, that's right. That's right. Signed, sealed, and delivered to yours truly. I can't wait to get into the rest of the letter. And there was a ton more in those right there. But I didn't want to take three, four, five, ten years to preach Revelation. So i got to show you what the Lord has called me to show you, and then we move on. But as we, as we do this last song of invitation, I want to invite you to come and I'll pray with you or you just pray where you are or whatever the Lord's leading you to do. But I want you to consider what the Bible has said. And if you live in accordance with the Word of God. Did you see how beautifully... Now, you got to understand that Psalms and, and Zechariah and, and Exodus was written thousands of years before Christ even came. And it was written by several different authors, over 40 different authors, over a 4,000-year period roughly, 66 books. The Bible is really actually more like a library spread out over all this time. And you're going to tell me that it's a coincidence that Zechariah 12, Exodus chapter 19, and Psalm 89 perfectly line up to show us the Messiah and what he did to bring about salvation to those who he chose. Come on. I saw this on Facebook the other day that the incarnation is, is, is most amazing. It is amazing. Incarnation meaning Jesus Christ becoming a man. But inscripturation is, is just equally amazing. Jesus Christ becoming the Word of God and that Word of God just being so full, so relevant, so masterfully woven together. Isn't it beautiful, guys? Isn't it beautiful? Isn't it, I love God's Word. So you respond as God leads you to respond. And uh, man, let's, let's let the Word of God sit in our hearts. Let's respond how he leads. Love y'all.